Science, as you know, is all about measurements. Take tigers. Scientists in India are attaching radio collars onto tigers to figure out their heart rate, where they're moving, at what speed, and so on. Or consider bees, which are declining everywhere. Scientists use traps and observations to keep a log of their presence. Like many realms of knowledge, ecology, that's the study of living organisms and the environment, is being transformed by big data. A couple of months ago, I spoke to Dr. Taro Mastonen. He's the head of the village of Selkir in Finland and a lead author of the landmark climate change report that was released last month by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that's IPCC. I asked Taro what he thought of how scientists study nature. <laughs> or more specifically, I asked him about the bees, the way scientists measure and manage the steep declines of bees and other pollinators. Well, my response would be that, did anybody ask the pollinators? What? Ask the bees? But Taro was dead serious. And do you still have a community that speaks with the pollinators, the bees or, or the wasps? You will still find some very remote area, probably here in the north, where you will have extraordinary women that can tell what the pollinator wants. Ultimately, natural sciences are tools to understand the world. They are only tools. What's lacking from them is the wisdom of making good decisions and wise survival for this planet. And that's why indigenous knowledge on biodiversity matters the most. You're listening to Scrolls and Leaves, a world history podcast where we tell stories from the margins. This is a bonus episode called Chatroom, where we interview experts. Today, you'll hear from Tara Mustanen on what scientists can learn from indigenous and traditional communities. It's going to require a bit of unlearning, so heads up. Tero belongs to Snow Change Cooperative, an organization that interlinks science and indigenous knowledge. And he was part of a group of experts who recently met with the U.S. President Joe Biden to tell him about the indigenous views on nature. This is Chatroom 19, Science versus the Indigenous Take on Biodiversity. I'm Gayathri Vaidinathan. And I'm Mary Rose Abraham. One more housekeeping note. If you can think of a friend who'd enjoy this podcast, why not take just a minute to pull up your WhatsApp and share our website, scrollsandleaves.com. This will help us so much to get the word out. And finally, the next time you hear from us, it'll be for the launch of Season 1, Trade Winds, coming up soon. We have seven exciting episodes set on the Indian Ocean world. Stay tuned. Next month, world leaders are getting together in China to discuss a treaty called the Convention on Biological Diversity. Nations have agreed they'll halt and reverse biodiversity loss, except they haven't so far been very good at it. All previous attempts have failed. And just to ensure we're all on the same page, I want to define biodiversity. It's the diversity of life in biological systems. So say you have a garden. The biodiversity would be the various types of plants, insects, and other creatures. Scientists measure biodiversity by counting species or population size, and there's also genetic diversity, a lot of metrics. Taro says that for indigenous people, biodiversity means something more complex, more comprehensive. What is biodiversity from a cultural and rooted core or center? There is no such word. 
For example, in our traditional case in eastern Finland, forests and the lakes were the world. So the old growth forest of the boreal, the taiga. The boreal, the taiga, these are ecosystems. Where the humans were only a small, small, small little entity next to much bigger powers, including the winter. I mean, in our village it used to be minus 40, and now we are lucky to get minus 15 in the winter. But let's not go into climate change. The whole point is that the the perception of reality the seen and the unseen of how the community or culture looks at the world. And there are these checks and balances on how humans should be behaving in our conduct with other species. I'll give you a very practical example. No hunter takes the last moose. Or if we are fishing, we could then decide as hunters and fishermen or the women that we will harvest this year these lakes and then they will be put to rest or put aside for five years will go elsewhere and still maintain a thriving living society. As seen from the traditional worldview, we need the help of the forest. We need the help of the lake, the roots, the plants, the animal life. He says that up to 80% of the planet's remaining intact biodiversity is in the homelands of traditional and indigenous communities. So they must be getting something right. And the way scientists study biodiversity change has some problematic history. The old way of doing things is a power position from which certain change has been monitored and deducted using the indicators and the number of methodological choices from national institutes, governmental agencies, universities, scientists, and so on and so on. And science is, of course, a very powerful analytical tool to understand biodiversity change. It will give you, at its best, very precise a number of species, uh, status and trends, extinction events, and combining that with whole massive array of um, scientific tools that we have in our disposal. Now, what's often missing today from these conversations is that this kind of science was constructed from a power position 400 years ago. Many of the colonial missions that set out from Europe, starting from 1500s, even 1400s, were tasked for description of what they called foreign or, or native ecosystems and peoples with the underlying mission to control and convert these ecosystems into um, one type of economic landscape or the other. One type of ecosystem was actually reproduced in most parts of the planet through the colonial process. I'm mostly referring to that grassland ecosystem where European cattle, sheep, cows and horses were exported to places ranging from Indonesia to Australia to Brasilia, Canada and of course India and Southeast Asia and elsewhere. So the point here is that when we monitor biodiversity, it has been in the past linked very strongly with state power. And it has been utilized from that power position to create power narratives on what constitutes reality and then subsequently what constitutes information on what's changing, what's biodiversity overall, what are the species, and when change happens, what does it mean? Taro says that indigenous knowledge can contribute to science in many ways. It could give us baselines of ecosystem change that go much further back than what we have available using scientific terms. I'll give you an example. Some of my colleagues have been working with a set of elders who possess still these oral histories and knowledges. They have been able to go back 40,000 years in positioning indigenous Australian land use campsites, which are now submerged under ocean. And also even to the extent that what kind of animals were hunted at that time and uses of the land. So engagement with these communities is very beneficial for science because the baseline information on What happened and why did it happen 
may yield completely new discoveries. The second reason is because indigenous languages and customs may contain deep insights about nature. Most of these indigenous and local communities are still embedded in their habitats, in their ecosystems. And, and uh, they often value and make deductions based on something called cultural indicators, which is then reflected in, um, in the local languages, dialects, then working with the local languages and species. Uh, many novel discoveries have been made because of the exciting way a local dialect has been able to point range shifts, habitats of species. For example, over the past few years in the Arctic, there's one whale species called narwhal, which is prominent between Greenland and, and Canada, and it, it has a long tooth. It was only a few years ago that a group of scientists actually led by this group of Inuit elders and, and hunters that are harvesting these whales, and they discovered completely novel behavior of this whale in, in the Arctic Ocean ecosystems. Where do they go? How do they breed? Why some whales have two teeth instead of one? Finally, he says that such communities have wisdom that can help scientists and policymakers make the right choices. What do traditional cultures and societies deduct for the current moment? What is their wisdom and ethics and choices, which can be sometimes very profoundly different than the so-called Western society or global society choices. And here I, of course, try to refer to the wisdom tradition of uh, surviving cultures, checks on over-harvesting, the profound links that some of these societies point between animals and humans. This is not a trifle thing if you listen carefully what's being said. The one word that comes out of all of it is really interconnectedness. That has been completely missed by biodiversity sciences, or if it has not been missed, it's then discussed in an analytical way that, yeah, pollinators are connected with the way we are surviving and the birds are eating them and insects are important. And when we make the new highway, why don't we leave two acres for a park? Because green spaces are great for humanity. Well, if we really and genuinely can find people from any wisdom tradition that's closely linked with an ecosystem, they see often these kind of choices as what your two-year-old niece would make, children's choices. Because the fundamental understanding of many ecosystem-embedded communities is that you should never maim or destroy your mother. You should never wipe out 80% or 100% of an ecosystem for human needs. You were listening to Tara Mustanen on Scrolls and Leaves. For more information and other episodes, visit scrollsandleaves.com or follow us on Twitter at Scrolls Leaves, Instagram at Scrolls and Leaves, or like us on Facebook. Do stay tuned for fresh episodes in binaural sound coming up in season one. See you then. <laughs>